We'll, be, we'll return next week to our study of John's gospel. We'll then uh, finish out for the springtime, uh, the week after that, so the next couple of weeks. Uh, but this morning we're going to look at Psalm 131 together. So I invite you to turn there now. While you're turning there, let's pray. Our Father, we, we come to you this day that you have made, this day that we celebrate, this day that has been made that we would come into your presence and be able to rejoice and be glad in it, for it is a day where you are with us, You're with us always, but uniquely you meet us in the house of your people, a place where you dwell all through the world, wherever people gather in your name. And we come not only to honor you through praises and offering our prayers, but to give our minds and our hearts to you, that you might speak to us. And so, Father, we come now praying that you would speak to us by your Spirit through this word that you have given and recorded for us. Bless us and shape us that we may not only be a blessing to you, but to the people among whom we live in accordance with your design. To you all praise and glory in the church, and through all nations, we pray in Christ. Amen. Psalm 131. Hear the word of God. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Amen. The grass withers and flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. So I, begin, I want to begin with a question for you. What are you getting or what did you get for your father to celebrate today? You know, that's a serious question. I know some of you are thinking that uh, someone stole a page out of my calendar and that I'm a month ahead of myself. I mean, this is Mother's Day. It's not Father's Day. And so what do you mean getting a gift for your father on Mother's Day? This is the day that we get gifts for our mothers to honor them as an expression of our thankfulness and of our appreciation. We get gifts for our mothers or for our wives who are mothers of our children, just as a, a token and as a gesture. It's like the guy who bought a beautiful, humongous diamond ring for his wife as an expression to say thank you to her for uh, the children that she brought with him into this world. When they got to church, the ring was attention of many people. A friend of the man who purchased the ring came, took him aside and said, that is a, a really a beautiful ring. But I thought you said that your wife wanted, really wanted in a, in a full-wheel drive, an SUV, to be able to get around. And he said, well, it's true, but where in the world am I going to find a fake Jeep? And while sometimes we cut corners and we don't honor the way that we ought to, it is perfectly appropriate for us to give gifts to our mothers, to honor them on this day. And yet when it comes time for church, and particularly the one who is bringing the message, sometimes 
these holidays, the Hallmark holidays, are difficult, more than you might imagine. For one, a day like this, while it is appropriate to honor mothers, there are people among us who this day brings grief to, and we are sensitive to that, and we do pray, and we do um, understand how that this day could be grief, whether through the loss of a child, or the inability to have children of your own, or having grown up in a home where your mother was not uh, the way that God would have designed it ordinarily to be. We, we realize that there is all kinds of grief on this day, and so to simply bring about platitudes sometimes brings inadvertent pain to some people, and it's certainly not what we want to do. But it's also because all of these holidays are, are not equal. And so like on Father's Day, it's very easy for us to come and we can skirt that difficulty by turning our attention rather than talking about the greatness of our dads, but talking about the greatness of our Heavenly Father and bringing attention to all of the wonderful and beautiful descriptions of our Father in Heaven that are revealed in the Scriptures. It took me a long time before I realized that Mother's Day lends itself to the consideration of our Father God every bit as much as Father's Day does. Because in the scriptures, God refers to himself in both masculine and in feminine terms throughout. Consider Genesis 5 when God is reaffirming the whole of the creation that he had given. And he says that he has made them after his own likeness, male and female, he has created them. God has created both male and female, and both male and female are equally after God's image. God created both men and women as an expression of who he, what his character is like and what he is like. And we live in a culture that has become confused in the sense that these kinds of passages are appropriated now and saying, see, there, even God has gender fluidity or there's a gender confusion. And that's not what these passages are referring to at all. What it is is saying that God has created both men and women. Both are equally made after the image of God. Therefore, both have dignity and both have value. And while there are many similarities between men and women, there are also many, many differences as well. I read an article this week, I can't remember where I, I first saw it, that uh, a, a, um, a medical group in Israel has chronicled over 6,500 uh, DNA differences between men and women. God describes himself in terms of both men and women. And the scripture is full of these kinds of imagery. Isaiah himself does a number of them. And just consider these for just a moment. You don't need to turn there uh, unless you're really fast. But consider this, Isaiah 49, verse 15. God is speaking to a people whose whole world is crumbling. They're getting sent into exile. And they feel like God has abandoned them. And as God is beginning to reassure them, he's told them what is going to happen, and he has informed them that their own sin has brought about the consequences that they are experiencing that makes it seem as if God had abandoned them. But in his love, he reassures them with these words. He asks them an absurd question. Can a mother forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? I mean, think about it for a moment, the imagery that God is bringing to mind to these people who are hurting. It's, you know, it's a mother who is nursing and then forgets she has a kid. It's just not going to happen. But he finishes that verse by saying, can a mother forget that she has a, a nursing child? Even if these may forget, yet I will not forget you. And so the affirmation here is the absurdity of a mother who's nursing, forgetting that she's a mother or forgetting her child, not having any care or compassion for him. 
and saying, you know, as impossible as it is to imagine that she might forget that she has the kid, I will never forget you. It's just a reaffirmation, but God is liking himself as a, as a nursing mother. And he picks up that same theme again uh, in, in Isaiah 66, where he makes reference to the comfort and the delight that comes to a child as he's nursing at his mother's breast. And then in Isaiah 66, 13, he makes this declaration. As one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you. You shall be comforted in Jerusalem. And so just in Isaiah, and these are just a, a couple of the images that God is describing himself in terms that are similar to a mother. That while he is a mighty warrior, a fierce father, heavenly father, he is also the tender, compassionate uh, comforter and, and feeder of his people. And God speaks very clearly in both of himself in both masculine and feminine terms. And so it's not just a matter of validating a gender that by tradition has been neglected. It's to say, if we really want to understand our God, if we want to know what God is like, we must not fall prey to tradition any more than we do contemporary culture. We must see the scriptures, and God refers to himself with both, and we must see him with all of those attributes, the best of what is ascribed to masculinity, as well as the best of what is ascribed to femininity. And so if God describes himself in this way, I come back and say it's appropriate for us to talk about our Father God on Mother's Day, which then brings us to my original question. What is it you're going to give to your father to celebrate and to honor him on this Mother's Day? And that brings us back to our psalm this morning, Psalm 131. It's been said to be short in verses but long in virtue. Or as Charles Spurgeon said in his uh, classic work, the treasury of David. Psalm 131 is one of the shortest psalms to read, but takes a lifetime to learn and to live. These three short verses, David is writing an intimate expression in his relationship to our God, and he allows us to eavesdrop into what he is saying, in part because we can learn from him, but even in a greater part because, as we will see, we ought to identify with him in these words. And as David is writing in this psalm, he uses imagery of the way he is going to relate to God, and they lend themselves well to outline as gifts that we, his people, are able to give to our Father that would bring him honor and delight. It's also important that we consider, whenever we talk about ideas that we're going to give God a gift, so remember the scripture says, look, am I somebody who's in need? I mean, are we going to give God something he lacks, something... It, he doesn't have? Is there something? There's nothing we have that he hasn't given to us. And so as we look at these, uh, as this passage this morning, we outline, and I'll give three things that will come in, form, uh, in, in the form of resolutions that we will make as a gift that we give to our Father, to consider these gifts to be kind of like, you know, the, the coupon books that sometimes our, our kids give us on Mother's Day or Father's Day or our birthday. I, I, that's the gift they give us. I mean, they don't have any money of their own, but they want to give us something. Our kids used to draw and color and then put little coupons and staple them together and give to us. I think I remember once that one of the coupons was they promised to, one of our kids promised to clean his room, which I thought was his responsibility anyway. I didn't know that was a gift, but apparently that was nevertheless. He was thinking and he knew that it would, I don't know if, he, if I cared as much as his mother, but that's, uh, and so, you know, but kids give what they've got. And what they have sometimes is simply a, a promise because, you know, they don't have anything else. 
And as we're relating to God, the same thing is sort of true. And yet we see in this passage, not only just token resolutions that we can make, but profound commitments in our life. God's not in need, but because he loves us, it does bring him joy. But even in the joy, we will see that they bring us benefit as well. And so as we look at this passage or this, these verses, the first coupon that I would encourage you and all of us to give to God is a resolution to grow up. If you read these verses and you look at it, you, one of the things that really stands out is that the, the imagery here in this psalm reflects the various stages of maturity, right? The one that stands out central is like a weaned child, but by implication, that's a contrast to an infant, a, a, a child that continues to nurse. And so you have the implication of the infant. Now it's a weaned child. That's a different category altogether. And then there's a hint of a level of maturity beyond that, because one of the things that David says here is that I, I don't occupy myself with things that are too great for me. In other words, I'm not consumed constantly by events that I don't understand and, and great questions. And that suggests to me that he's not talking about just a typical weaned child. Now, I know in that culture, it was a little different. They didn't have Similac and formula and whatever. And so infants were, or children were weaned a little bit later, usually, you know, late three, four years old, which in most of our cultures doesn't happen. But even if that's the case, there's not many four, five, or even six-year-olds that I know that would stop and ponder and saying, well, my anxiety is caused because I'm spending my time occupying too much attention on the events of the world that I don't understand. You know, why is there a war going on? What's the cause of this? And what's the implication going to be for my life? It doesn't happen, does it? Not at that, well, it didn't happen with my kids. Your kids may be smarter, but that's... Uh... And so the idea that David is talking about that, there, I, I think that there's, they're still talking about being a child, but there's an age, a maturity, an ability to discern and to process and to think and to be able to determine a little bit about his own heart. And we, we see those stages. They're the normal stages of life that we expect everybody to go through. And while everybody loves a baby, we also all agree that if a child remained in that stage of life in perpetuity, if we see stunted growth, we would consider it a tragedy. There are certain things that are not only acceptable, but might even be considered cute when we consider babies and infants. Diapers for one, you know, the successes and even the failures of potty training. That's fine when somebody is one, two, or three. But if it's your 14-year-old, you have problems. And what we need to understand is that what is true in a biological sense, that there is a, a need for us to grow, and stunted growth is an indication of a tragedy, what is true biologically is also true spiritually. That if somebody comes and continues to act only like a baby and as an infant, who is in need of milk and spoon feeding for the entirety of their life, it is a tragedy. Even if they come and simply are weaned but never grow and are never able to process and never able to think and to, to meditate upon what God has said and to process their own experiences in light of God's sovereignty. It's disappointing. So one of the gifts that we can give, whatever stage you are in spiritually right now, whether you are a new believer or whether you've been a believer for a long time, whether you are exemplary to us in your character and in your understanding of God's word, is that we would resolve that we would continue to grow 
But notice in this passage that even as the child grows, even as David reflects the different categories of stages of life, even as he's processing, he never grows independent. Independence from God is never the mark of ultimate maturity. But the ultimate that he describes himself as, even with his maturity, his ability to reason, all of his understanding is, his joy comes as being comforted like a child who has been weaned but is in his mother's lap. See, God calls us to grow and to continue to grow in more and more in Christ's likeness, but our maturity is never to launch us apart from God, but to help us to grow deeper in our relationship with him. Second resolution that I would encourage you and me to give to our God is, there, is not only that we would resolve to grow up, but we would resolve to cultivate a quiet heart. That's what David is talking about in these first two verses. He begins by saying, Oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up. In other words, he's, he's, not, he's not prideful. My eyes are not raised too high. He doesn't have, he's not driven by blind ambition. And I do not occupy myself with things that are too great and too marvelous for me. And here he's demonstrating a, a, a level of humility that he has come to realize that there are just some things that are beyond our understanding. There are some things that happen in this life that God has not told us the whys or the what is going to happen. And then there are different variations of that for any one of us is you may understand something from God's word or experience that I've not yet come to understand. And I can, it's not that I shouldn't continue to pursue understanding, but if I'm finding myself anxious and feeling oppressed and undone because of my lack of understanding, I need to turn my focus onto something else. I'm just not ready. I'm not mature enough to deal with that. And so David is demonstrating a humility here by saying, there are things that are beyond my comprehension. Or as Clint Eastwood would probably paraphrase this passage, a man's got to know his limits. And in that humility, we need to learn to be able to say sometimes, I don't know. And yet, for some reason, we are sometimes afraid to use those words. Maybe it's when your children come to you. Or somebody else that you know is a new believer and is hungry, and they come with this perplexing question. Many times some of you may know the answer. Sometimes I know the answers. But sometimes we don't. We may have thought about it but not come to a resolution or maybe we never really thought about it at all. And there's something that compels many of us to try to answer anyway. It's almost as if we're afraid to show that there's something that we don't know, particularly to our children and people that we're trying to influence. We need to recognize the humility that David is saying and reminding us that sometimes the best answer is, I don't know. In fact, sometimes I don't know is the most powerful answer that you can give because you are demonstrating, whether it's to your child or to somebody else, that it's not a matter of having arrived, but we are all works in process. And while we may grow and know and understand much as we walk with God, there's always things that we don't know, and we are freeing people to be able to acknowledge they don't know. We are freeing people to be humble and as well as honest about what they know when we use the words, I don't know. 
David says that he's cultivating a quiet heart that comes partly with that humility. And there's also something else here that I find that's interesting about the cultivating, and the reason I use the word cultivating a quiet heart, because David uses the word I, I do, I have, which is you know past tense of something that, uh, that he, he has done. And the reason that's significant is because it's indicating that part of the maturation process, part of the calming of the heart, is not simply praying to God and hoping that he calms your heart, but there is a part that we play as well in our maturation and in our spiritual and emotional stability. That's what David is saying. He's using the word I, I have, I do, and it's an indication. And sometimes this is very confusing for us. Most of us, if not all of us, our natural instinct is to believe that we need to do something, to measure up, somehow become good enough to earn God's favor and that God would want to hang out with us. And then you showed up to some PCA church or some other reformed church and somebody informed you, well, you can try all you want, but there's not anything you can do. You are dead in your sins, not just wounded in your sins, and dead people don't help much in their own health in, in, in the process. It requires God to be the one who regenerates, to make alive, and to be at work, and to bring you. And he does that by the power of the Spirit, granting you faith, and through faith that you are reconciled to God. And so you're, you're, you're taught what the Scripture teaches very clearly. Theologians refer to that work as monergism. The word mon, it's God, and God alone is the one who works. And so we rightly recognize that, and we rightly praise God when we come to worship for his work, driven by his love, an expression of his grace that brings us to life. But because we made such a change from our instinct to under, this understanding of coming to life, sometimes we, it's hard for us to understand or nobody tells us to recognize that once God brings us to life, it's not that he stops working, he continues to work, but he invites us into the process. He invites us to cooperate with his spirit as we grow. And that's what David is describing here. He says, I have calmed and quieted my soul. So David did something, and it's a reflection that we, there's something that we are to do. And what's interesting is the, the Hebrew word here for calm literally means to, to level. David Powison of CCEF, in his book, Seeing with New Eyes, he uses the imagery of bulldozing when he's describing this passage. Here's what Powison says. To compose or to calm your soul means literally to level it. It's to bulldoze the building site. So it gives us a very vivid imagery, something that almost all of us have seen, probably all of us. If you've driven any time in the past couple of years along Route 5, you've seen the work that was uh, for, the, uh, for the trail to take from Colonial Williamsburg into Richmond. And so the bulldozers were out there and they were plowing the ground and the rough and the kind of the, I'll call it a hill, a hill for Eastern Virginia, um, is knocked down and leveled out and the excess is put into the low points. And so the basic work uh, is to take that which is high and smooth it out and take that which is low and to raise it up. So the whole plane is leveled out stable. 
able to be traveled upon easily or to be built upon. And it's the same imagery that David is talking about here that he is using in his own heart that we also, as part of cultivating a quiet heart, need to be aware of. To recognize that many of us go from highs to lows with very little stability in between. And we want the Ferris wheel to stop except that God's call to us is to ask ourselves, why are we getting excessively high and why do we crash to excessive lows? And to begin to deal with whatever issues in our lives that create that instability. There's a role for us to play and to be aware of our hearts and to bulldoze, to level those things out. The power comes from God. But the work is also ours. And as David is talking about that in this particular passage, as he's, he's talking about bulldozing his own heart, or at least leveling his own heart, he's describing that he's removing those obstacles that rob him of peace and of joy. Dealing with the things that cause him to go into the depths. And the result is that he describes himself at the moments when he is successful in this as having the contentment and the comforts of a weaned child who is on his mother's lap. The characteristic that he has here is somebody who knows that he is accepted, knows that he is loved, doesn't feel the need to perform in order to get this acceptance, recognizes that he has the support. His job is not to be the greatest. He's not to be the example. He's simply to relate, in this case, to his father God with motherly qualities. And this is important for many of us to consider because if you have any background with an evangelical church, chances are at some point somebody who was trying to help you grow, maybe me, encouraged you and gave you the idea that part of your responsibility is to always be a great witness. To be an example of what a Christian is supposed to be. And you feel like you always have to perform, that the spotlight is always on you, people are always watching you. And that kind of mindset inevitably leads us to just crash because we can't sustain that. We're not designed to sustain that. And the irony is, is it's not by our performance that we demonstrate what a Christian is. It's by constantly cultivating our hearts, leveling them, and finding our contentment in the lap of our Father God with the mother-like qualities. That's the evidence of being a Christian. And David is demonstrating that he is simply being himself and realizes he doesn't need to be more. And what is interesting about this particular psalm is we have no idea when David wrote this. See, the scriptures record several of David's psalms. Some came when he was king. Some came when he was having difficulties as a king, after he had fallen and you know, suffering consequences. Some came before he was king and he was a, a nobody. And I think it's important that we recognize we don't know when this one was written and it doesn't really matter because the absence of that clarity reminds us that this truth is not just for the high and it's not just for the low, but it is universal. These truths, the need to cultivate a quietness in our own heart by simply being ourselves 
and dealing with ourselves, participating with the grace of God, it's a universal need for every one of us. You may have seen last week was the 143rd running of the Kentucky Derby. Consequently, the movie Secretariat has been on in perpetuity uh, for the past few weeks. Fortunately, it's a good film, or at least I, I like the film. And if you've seen it, you, you may remember that there is a, a scene in the movie where Penny Chennery, played by Diane Lane, she's back on the farm, Caroline County, up near Fredericksburg. Her father is still alive, but having had a stroke, he's incapacitated, and so she's taken charge. And she's just gone to the coin toss, which she lost, and therefore she had to settle for the horse that they named Secretariat. And she brings the horse back to the farm. I guess the horse was born on the farm, the other one was taken away. And so she brings the horse to her father, and even though the stroke has robbed him of many of his abilities, the, at least in the film, he has a reputation for not only loving horses, but having an understanding of them. And he kind of grumbles through as he's looking at this horse and just simply says, let him run his own race. And that becomes a theme that is a thread through the rest of the film that pertains not only to the horse secretariat, but also for the people in the film and the moral of the film that it applies to us as people as well. That's what we're supposed to take away from, from this film. And what he meant by that and what the film producers intended for us to understand is Secretariat was uniquely built, unlike any other horse supposedly that had come before. And while his occupation was horse racing, therefore he was in competition by very definition with other horses, it wasn't the competition, the beating or the losing to other horses that should define him and should drive him. Let him run his own race was simply to say he has a unique design, let him be himself. That's success and in this case, because he followed his own race, he became what is still considered to be widely the greatest racehorse ever in history. And in some senses, David is saying the same thing for us in this particular passage. It's part of cultivating the quiet heart. See, God made you unique. He's endowed you with certain gifts and characteristics. He has provided you whatever the circumstances in your life. Some of you may be thankful. Some of us may be less thankful for them. But all of them are part of divine ordinance to God to shape us, to be uniquely who we are. And all he is calling us to do is not be better than other people, but to run your own race in the way that he has uniquely designed you. And only as you run your own race can you experience success, peace, and joy. Because otherwise, we are preoccupied with what everybody else is do, not what God would have for me to do and what he designed me to do. And so David here is saying very essentially, run your own race. And when you run your own race, you'll find the joy, but you'll also find contentment and peace. Whether you're raised to be a king or whether you continue to be a shepherd, you can enjoy and glorify God. So resolve to give God a coupon of growing up. Give him a coupon that is a resolution that you will cultivate a quieted heart. And finally, I would say resolve to root your hope in the love and grace of the Lord. And that's simply the third verse. It is also the primary means 
by which we level our heart and by which we bulldoze it. Now, look at that verse for a second so that we understand what that means. And, and it's really interesting because David begins this verse, O Israel, hope in the Lord. And what's interesting about that is up to this point, the first two verses were very personal, weren't they? I do, I have, my, and, and, and he's, he's, he's sharing about himself. Now he shifts gears, almost seems to be preaching, proclaiming. Oh, Israel, meaning people of God are those governed by God. I think what he's doing here is not only reminding himself, but declaring to everybody else is David's example is not only his own. And the promises that David is clinging to are not only to him. He is but one person who is part of the covenant family known as the people of God, Israel. And so he's declaring as a reminder that he just won part, but to everybody else, that this is our need. And this is the gift that we can give to God. And because this is an expression of the covenant family of which David is simply part, but everyone, we're told, who is in Christ is an heir to the covenant of Abraham. You are children of that same covenant. So therefore, it is appropriate here. It's not always appropriate when we do this in Scripture, but it would be perfectly appropriate here, big word, the hermeneutical uh, approach, to read this passage and insert your name where it says Israel, because you are one individual that is part of the covenant community. It would be perfectly appropriate for, say, oh, Camper, oh, Benjamin, oh, Chris, Put your hope in the Lord. He's talking to himself as well as to other people when he's talking about this. And it's important that we also understand what he's talking about hope too because we get that sort of confused. We use the word hope when we're talking about something that we would like to see happen but we have no ability to influence the outcome, don't we? So I would say, much to the danger of my health in the first service and possibly this one, I hope to see the Penguins repeat as Stanley Cup champions. And I'm clearly the Bryans are not here today because they were the ones I expected to get the name in from. But anyway, that's, uh, and protect my back. But, um, and I can hope all I want. I can watch every game. I could go to every game. If I had the money, I could buy stock in the team. I could call all the players, try to encourage them if I didn't get arrested for stalking. There's not a thing that I can do that will play any part in the outcome towards what I say I'm hoping for. But we understand that's what we mean by hope. But biblically, that's not what they meant when they talked about hope. See, hope, when it's used in the Old and New Testament, it was the gap between what is promised and expected and its realization. And so a better description, it's not I hope that my team wins or I hope something happens. A better description would be something like this, that a groom who was standing in the front of a sanctuary while the bride appears at the arm of her father and starts her way up the aisle. He is hoping at that point for the time when they will be one, when she will be his, he will be hers. He is hoping because it hasn't yet happened, but it's going to happen. It's pretty much inevitable that it's going to happen, at least at that point. When she comes through the door, it means she showed up, so she didn't bail on him. It's going to happen. It's just there's that gap. And there are things that are gaps in our lives. God has made promises to us, and he's made the down payment. He's made the deposit, but we haven't seen it yet come to fruition. It's just a matter of time. But it is as certain, because God is the one that's promised it, as if it has already taken place. That's the hope that David is promising. He's saying, remind yourself of that hope. Root your hope in the Lord. 
And when he's talking about the Lord, he means not only the person of the Lord, but every promise the Lord has made. Jesus Christ is Lord. And what David is essentially saying that Paul would later elaborate is, it's kind of this, look, if he didn't spare his own son and gave him up for us all, then what promises is he not going to fulfill? That's the basis, the down payment of the hope that we have. But the hope is in the person and the character of God and all of his promises, and that is the basis of the hope. And then David says, put your hope from this point. It's a resolution that he's making, a gift that he's giving to himself and to God. From this day forward and forevermore. Why? Seems redundant. But what David is reflecting in that statement is this. I can make that resolution today, but tomorrow the sun will come up, it's a new day, and I will forget it. And we are so prone to forget that that's where we put our hope, and our hope either gets sidetracked, or we just willingly put it in so many other things. We are constantly in need of reminding ourselves of this passage to put our hope in the Lord, because it's that hope in the Lord and all of his promises that enables us the resource and the power to bulldoze the issues in our lives that enable us to grow up. This Mother's Day, I want to encourage you, give the coupon book to God. Make these resolutions to grow up, to cultivate a quiet heart within you, and to root your hope in the Lord. Because it is not only beneficial for you, it brings joy to our Heavenly Father. And as the fruit of this comes, I'm pretty sure your earthly mother will appreciate it too. Let's pray. Father, let's, we come to you with thanksgiving and pray that you would speak to us even through this word in this day. We thank you for the mothers who gave us life. We thank you for those who have shaped us. We mourn for those who have lost their mothers or their relationships are strained. But we give thanks nevertheless. But ultimately we give thanks to you, our Lord, for you gave us mothers as a picture of your love that is even greater than we can imagine. May we grow in our understanding of this May we grow in our experience of this, that we might grow in our joy of you. To your praise, to our good, to your glory, to our joy, we pray. Amen.